You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This episode of the All Things Private Practice Podcast is brought to you by Embark EMR. Embark is a superb software solution for the solo practitioner as well as group practices. Embark was designed by therapists to be simple and intuitive without all the extra stuff that you don't need so you don't feel like you're being nickel and dimed. Embark enables scheduling with automatic appointment reminders, a note organization system with multiple pre-built templates, and an automated invoice and super bill generation to make it easier on your clients. There's even a patient portal where your client Clients can access notes, documents, and generate their own invoices and super bills. Embark EMR is setting a new precedent in EMR functionality and affordability. Embark's simple one-tier system is $20 a month per therapist, and there are never any extra fees. Try Embark EMR today with a free trial at EmbarkEMR.com. You can also use code ATPP for 20% off an entire year of Embark. Hey, everyone. This is Patrick with the All Things Private Practice Podcast, talking about different topics in small business ownership, private practice, and mental health. Joined today by Victoria Rodriguez. She is an LPC in New Orleans, which she refers to as the Chicago of the South, and owns a company called My Car Is My Office. So we are going to talk today about imposter syndrome, leaving community mental health, and starting your private practice. So Victoria, thank you so much for coming on. I know it was short notice, but I'm really happy to have you here. Yeah, no, thank you, Patrick. I really feel like this is going to be a good conversation and it's been leading up to this in your podcast, especially when you talk about, you know, leaving community mental health, what imposter syndrome looks like in community mental health and then private practice. It's so different, but so similar, right? Totally. It is so different and so similar in the way it shows up. And one thing I hear so often from therapists who are taking the leap, so to speak, is that they are fearful and scared and anxious and insecure. And I think that's really normal when we don't know what we don't know, especially when we didn't have any business training in grad school for the most part. So like we're just taking this leap of faith, like I really hope this works out because I've got to get the hell out of community mental health. So can you tell us a little bit about like your journey and what led you here and, and why this topic feels important for you? Sure. So I am still in community mental health, but I will be leaving next week. So this is a really appropriate time, you know, to talk about why I chose, you know, to leave and start my own private practice right out of community mental health versus maybe working for a group practice or working in another setting. And yet while I'm still leaving community mental health, uh, my PhD is in counseling and I study community mental health. I work in training on community mental health. And something that you had said in your last podcast or in the first one that you had recorded was that, you know, community mental health is still needed. And I 100% agree with that. And also think that that's a large part of where my imposter syndrome comes in. If I know I'm doing the important work here, I know I'm doing important work in community mental health, 
But at what point is it just no longer sustainable for me, both emotionally, financially? um, Sure, why not spiritually? You know, to the soul, it gets, you know, you worked in it for years. It just gets exhausting and not financially sustainable anymore. So I think I finally reached that point in my own agency work. You know, even though I work for an agency that is relatively supportive in comparison to a lot of other agencies, both in our area and throughout the United States, it just no longer became financially viable to continue to work in that system. When I could see, you know, half the amount of clients that I would see in a day, not have any travel and just have more opportunities, you know, to do podcasts like this or to just grow my own practice and my own income. Yeah, that's really well said. And I almost get the sense that there's some sadness that comes up when you start talking about leaving and that almost polarizing feeling of, I love the mission, I love the clients, but I just can't do this anymore. Like, this is not sustainable. This is not viable for me financially if I want to move on to different goals. And having a PhD, I imagine you accrued some student loan debt throughout the process. And that doesn't work well when we're in community mental health settings. Some of us hold on for like the I hope I get an acceptance into the student loan repayment process. But like, I think the odds are so fucking slim. It's like 10% of applicants. So yeah, I guess your transition out is a powerful one because it sounds like you did good work. You're ready to leave. And what was the tipping point for you? Like everyone has their breaking point moment. I definitely remember what mine was. Yeah. So for me, it was sitting down and just doing the math. I have an amazing supportive supervisor. So I'm not finished with my um, PhD yet. I start my dissertation next semester. And I thought I'll just do community mental health throughout the rest of my education so that there doesn't have to be this disruption, right? You know, it's almost, and it goes back to that comfort. Like it's almost more comfortable to stay than it is to step into something new, to step into something that is fear provoking, then it might just be easier to stay in community mental health. But for me, really just sitting down and doing the math and saying, I literally cannot afford what I need to survive at this point, you know, and and I'm talking about, you know, getting a new car when my car breaks down. I'm talking about, you know, making a, a reasonable mortgage, you know, just all of these expenses that were adding up to where I said, you know, I don't know how much more I could sacrifice financially to make it worth it. And even when you bring up, you know, student loan forgiveness, I really almost think of that as being in like what comes for me is almost being in like this financially abusive relationship where, you know, one day it's going to pay out one day, you know, 10 years later, three years later, whatever it is, I am going to, you know, I'm going to buy me a farm and settle down on some land. But it, you know, like you said, it is just not happening a fast enough and B not at all. And there's been a lot of reporting on that recently, you know, that I'm sure people can just Google because it's, it's been all over the news, how they're trying to revamp it. But I could not afford to wait around for that to happen. That's really well said. I talk about emotionally abusive relationship comparison sometimes to community mental health because it does such a good job of keeping us there, right? It's secure. It's consistent. I know what I'm going to get, but it really breaks me down. It really makes me feel bad about myself at the end of the day. I have no capacity left to even think straight. I'm burnt out. I'm miserable. I'm underpaid. I'm undervalued. All, all the things, right? Like that comes with the territory and systemically it sucks because it's pretty broken, but we bear the of that. And yeah, if you're holding on for 10 years to potentially get loan forgiveness, like what do those 10 years look like if you're just counting down the days until year 10 hits? And then like, how burnt out are you at the end of that time? Do you transition to a different career? You know, like I just feel for people who are holding on like that and I give them credit, but like that's not something that feels sustainable for me. Also, what are we working towards, right? Like life is short and unpredictable. If I'm holding on for 10 years, what if I never get to do 
the things that I want to do with my career, with my personal life. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's an interesting thing. So tell us about how imposter syndrome is showing up for you as you're leaving community mental health to start your business. Yes. Let's talk about that. I found that, you know, I thought I had gotten over all of this original imposter syndrome out of grad school, going into my PhD. I had a lot of, how do I want to put that? Like affirmations, you know, from what I had accomplished academically. But the problem when you go from community mental health to private practice is really that you're working with clients that really want to be there for the first time. So I started asking myself, you know, how can I charge people, you know, X amount for session when I am already so lucky to be in private practice when I am already so lucky to be in community mental health. And I realized that that's like a socialized message, you know, that I've received that other people have received and are types of programs that are very helper based. You know, you are, you know, we receive those messages of you are a helper, you are self-sacrificing and that's what makes you a good therapist. So for me, the imposter syndrome comes in in kind of that incongruence of I view myself as a helper, but how can I live up to these expectations of people paying? me literal cash, you know, to help the problems. Can I really help them? And then that's when I use, you know, my own skills and my own therapy to explore, okay, but my job isn't to fix this problem for them. You know, that that's their responsibility. And another issue too, is just niching. I found that an incredibly difficult transition. I'm not sure, you know, if you experienced the same, but just moving to a point where I was seeing generally everything, you know, all sorts of trauma, domestic violence, substance use, and really figuring out, okay, now that I have a choice. I have a say in what I want to specialize in. How do I even begin to explore what's important to me or what's a passion of mine when I have been trying to learn everything in community mental health, when I have been seeing every type of problem in community mental health? So that was, a, I would say that was one of the major challenges for me was just figuring out a niche and who specifically I wanted to work with. Those are great points. And I think it's such a common experience. So for the niche piece, I think that can elicit and evoke a lot of shamefulness around, am I excluding people? I've gotten so comfortable working with such a diverse set of problems and acuity levels and struggles. Then all of a sudden I'm honing in on people I really like to work with. And that combats that narrative of like, aren't I supposed to like to work with everybody? But in reality, like we're not, we are just not set up as human beings to be able to work with everybody that comes in the door, especially on an outpatient setting. And I know that brings up a lot for people. And I talk about that a lot in my coaching because it feels like we're like not really casting a wide net. We're going to exclude population A, B, and C. And that's why good content creation and like good understanding of your client's problem areas comes into play and having good referral lists. That's really crucial. So that if someone comes in, I'm like, okay, I'll refer client A to Cindy because she specializes in A, B, and C. And as for the like incongruent there, right? Like, are people going to pay me? Do I have enough experience to help people who want to be helped? Do I have enough letters behind my name? Do I offer intervention A, B, and C? You know, that really starts to ramp up. And then it's like, oh shit, I am not competent enough to do this. I'm fraudulent. Like I've just lucked by in my success and now I'm here. And like, people are going to find me out and tell me like, you suck as a therapist, go do something else. And I think you're so right about doing your own therapy. That's crucial. And also circling back to basics of like, our job is not to fix. I think 
think we get that message and we think like our job is to fix. My mentality has always been my job is to work myself out of a job by helping people learn coping skills to use them on their own. And I think that grad school does not set us up well to separate ourselves from the work that we do. It's almost conditioned to believe we have to be supportive of everybody. We have to give all of ourselves away. And then there's that running joke of like, you don't get into this profession to make money. Ha ha ha. And it's like, yeah, we buy into that shit. And that becomes our reality. Yeah, absolutely. And like, just speaking of that bullshit message of, you know, you didn't get into this field to make money. You know, I want us to take a look at other fields who that is told to, you know, it's told to teachers, it's told to childcare, it's told to people at, oh my gosh, the nonprofit culture, you know, and if you are a leader or a supervisor or your professor, and you're passing that down, I would really encourage you, you know, to look at maybe your own countertransference there or your own, you know, why do I feel the need to tell this message? Do I feel like it's my personal responsibility? Like it's an obligation? You know, it's really something to explore because then, of course, like you said, it becomes this affirming, you know, the self-affirming message where you're right, I didn't get into this field to make money. So of course, I'm never going to make money because I'm never going to take those opportunities that would lead to that. Yeah, absolutely. Good advice. I did just record a podcast on money mindset and anxiety and trauma that I'll be releasing. And I believe wholeheartedly that those of us who got into this profession, to heal ourselves through our work, struggle more with the concept of charging for our services. Because if we're believing that our job is to give ourselves away to heal other people, that's really problematic. And that's where codependency gets fostered too in the therapeutic relationship. That's why I see so many people have a hard time step away and take vacations. Like I can't step away because my clients need me. And I'm like, ooh, that's a red flag to me. Like ooh. your clients should not yeah. need you to get by. Like I get there's different acuity levels levels, but that's problematic in my view. But anyway, back to imposter syndrome. So yeah, this is so common, you know, and for newer therapists, especially like I think even my clinical director, who is a phenomenal therapist at my group practice, she was struggling with this at first when she went into private practice because she was like, these people are functional, like they are doing really well. I don't think I know how to help them. And I was like, Jen, you're fantastic. Just hold space. Like, let's just hold space and help like just be present. That's it. Like, it's all about the relationship. And then now she's flourishing and like, oh, yeah, this is fucking awesome, right? Like, I love this every day. So I think we get lost in that. And I think you made a good point. Like, go back to basics and just hold that space. And remember, it's just about the relationship. It's not about fixing. Yeah. And I think, too, it comes down to that system of when you work in community mental health, unfortunately, it is about fixing. You know, they do want to see results. They want to see results that they want to see. So maybe not even the results that the client or you want to see. So a lot of that is just taking that mentality out of when you go into private practice. Or you can even start to explore that, you know, for your listeners who are still in grad school, you know, exploring where is this guilt coming from? Where is this imposter syndrome coming from? And where or why do I feel this need to fix people and what messages have I received? Because I think we do receive that from these systems like Medicaid or Medicare that are very much wanting to see specific outcomes. So that's difficult as well as I'm sure it was for Jen of just figuring out what does it mean to help people that are not as high of a need that I might see in community mental health. And even to your point about, you know, imposter syndrome with taking a vacation, I will always view that as problematic when a clinician says, I cannot take two weeks off, my clients depend on me. And then it either becomes A, 
are you dependent on your clients for that sort of validation for your imposter syndrome? You know, is that is that how you're dealing with your imposter syndrome? Or it's B, they really do need a higher level of care. And then you're burning yourself out and you're not practicing as ethically as you could be with them. So I think that's a really great point that you bring up. Yeah, I see that a lot, you know, because I take 12 to 15 weeks off a year and I talk about this regularly and the responses I get, I mean, other than like, oh, I wish I could do that is like, how can you do that to your clients? Like, how can you step away so often? And that wasn't always the case, but I've had to get really comfortable with the fact that like, if I'm around or I'm not around, the outcomes are probably going to be the same. Like I cannot control action and dictate circumstance. So just really recognizing like higher levels of care are sometimes important to assess for and refer out to in an outpatient setting because we only have so much capacity and resource when we're working for ourselves. And I really want to think about like how imposter syndrome starts to show up for new providers. Like usually it's perfectionism. I can't launch my website until it's perfect because people are going to see it. It's never going to be good enough. I'm fraudulent. I am incompetent. I'm not good enough. We do a lot of comparison, right? Like especially on social media, that comes up a lot in the Facebook groups. Hey, so-and-so gets more likes. Hey, my stuff isn't as good as so-and-so's. I'm never going to be successful. And I really want to help people combat that narrative of like, everyone gets to make this what they want it to be because it is a small business. You are an entrepreneur. You get to make your business whatever you want it to be with whatever amount of money you want to charge. And going back to your Medicaid, Medicare statements, if we're always focused on productivity, we're always focused on outcome. We're operating from the medical model, right? Like we're doing that for insurance purposes. That is not great client care. Most of our clients don't necessarily even have end goals or need smart goals all the time. They're just like, I need a place to talk. Like, I just need a place to be present and talk about shit in my life that's going on. So like, if we're always measuring outcome, it it really takes away from the work that we're doing too. Yeah, absolutely. So that was a huge difference for me starting off is after every session, I would kind of annoyingly ask, okay, how do you feel this is working for you? How do you feel you're moving towards your goals? And finally, thank God, one of my clients was like, you have to stop. Like, this is fine. (laughs) I'm just coming here to, you know, talk about my family, get this out. And not to say that we're not working towards goals, but we know from the research that therapy in and of itself, just the relationship is the number one indicator of therapeutic value. So, you know, however much you want to argue moving towards goals, it's in the research. That is the most valuable stuff that we bring to therapy. Yeah. And I think that you're right. Like when you transition out, you start working with clients with their own agendas. We sometimes try to dictate or push our own. Like, hey, how do you feel this is working? Like you said, or when do you want to work towards A, B, and C? And they're like, their message is almost like, are you trying to get rid of me? Like, are you trying to like push me out the door? Because I just want to be here to just talk, you know, like I just want to process and feel safe and feel heard and validated. So you're absolutely right about the research on that end. And I just want to challenge new therapists to think about the fact that it is about the relationship. So when you feel like you had a session that didn't go well, maybe it felt like it was just off. You start to question, am I a good therapist? Am I competent? Like, can I be a competent business owner? And those thoughts will come up. They came up for me all the time. Just go back to the fact that it just may be that the relationship isn't the right one, that it just may not be attunement. And that's okay. You can't be everything for everybody. Not every client is going to be a good fit for you. It has no reflection on you as a professional if the relationship isn't there. That's a good indicator that it's time to refer out to someone else. 
Yeah, definitely. And I, I love how you're bringing up, even with this imposter syndrome, almost like this fear of referral. Like referral is going to mean that you're a fraud and that you weren't able to help them. And I would just challenge new therapists as well as they're figuring out what it looks like to refer. If one of my students, you know, that I supervise in my program, if they're not able to tell me something they do good, like if they're only listing off things that, oh, I messed up here or, you know, this session was terrible. All my sessions are terrible. It's all terrible. If you cannot tell me one thing that you did well, that is a deficit. You need to be able, you know, to point out what does good therapy look like? What is what is one thing that you did well or that you're fixing in the session? On, and honestly, it's for them as well as their clients, because when you move into private practice, and that goes back to niching, you are going to have to be able to say what you do well. And that might be part of your imposter syndrome healing. You know, again, that's something you can explore in coaching or in therapy to help you out with that. Yeah, absolutely. And niching brings up imposter syndrome because it's there's vulnerability in saying I specialize or I'm the expert in this population or this struggle or issue because it's like, how can I ever be the expert? But in reality, it's like, who do I really enjoy working with and whose struggles do I really, really, really understand? And niching is important in terms of marketing. Like nobody's going to pay you out of pocket if you don't know who you work with, if you're kind of all over the place in your marketing. And I hear this all the fucking time. I'll talk about this forever. I see so many website audits now or Psych Today profiles that say like, I'm a trauma-informed therapist and I'll walk alongside you. And my website has pictures of stacked rocks and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, yo, be authentic. Like you don't know who you work with. And if this is coming across to clients, they're going to look at it and be like, yeah, pass. Like I'm moving on to someone who really gets my struggle. So it's okay to really niche down, to hone in. You don't have to be like unbelievably specific but I would really challenge people to start thinking about the fact that you need to know your ideal client's pain points, their struggles, their concerns, and you need to get it. Like you need to be able to verbalize it in their language. And I know that brings up vulnerability and insecurity, but it will also create instantaneous rapport building without the client ever even meeting you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you when you bring that up about niching down, I just think about and I guess I'm just thinking about this for the first time. And it's making me curious, you know, where are those messages that you hear that you cannot proclaim that you're an expert unless you have X, Y, Z training? And of course, you know, I don't want to suggest that you should be practicing a very specific modality or with a very specific population without training. But it almost seems like it's it's gone the completely opposite direction where there is this intense gatekeeping, you know, where if you are not trained in this specific modality, you cannot work with this type of client or, you know, I, I hear the word unethical or harm thrown around a lot without really giving reason why, you know, just on like those Facebook groups that you brought up. And I feel like for me, that's almost messages that I've internalized that kind of feeds my imposter syndrome. So that might not be everybody's experience, but certainly that fear of proclaiming, no, I'm an expert or I'm at least proficient in treating this, you know, in this population. I have actually had a lot of training, you know, so almost just going back to CBT of just like challenging those thoughts and saying, you know what, that is not that is not necessarily accurate. And where are these messages of improper gatekeeping coming from that I receive? Yeah, well said. And like you said, certain populations, obviously, everyone listening, we're not advocating that you go proclaim that you're a specialist in disordered eating if you have no experience in disordered eating, etc. However, you can certainly proclaim that you are an expert in certain population struggles. So for example, when I started, I worked with men struggling with addiction. I am a man who used to be an active addiction. I can proclaim in a way that not only do I have my licensed clinical addiction specialist license, but I know what it's like to walk that walk and talk that talk and what it's like to go through those experiences. So the more you can start to do that, 
And I'm a firm believer that our ideal client population is some version of ourselves. And that might evolve over time. So right now, my ideal population is high achieving perfectionistic entrepreneurs, which is a version of myself. And that will evolve as we grow, as we learn more, as we train more, and as we kind of get more insight into who we like to work with. It's not a bad thing to say, I like to work with clients A, B, and C, or traits A, B, and C, or struggles A, B, and C, and I don't like to work with client A, B, and C. That is okay, because if you don't like to work with certain types of clients, you're doing the client a disservice by continuing the relationship. So I want everyone to also just think about what Victoria said about referring. Referring is a strong tool in your tool belt. And it's appropriate for your client because you're actually doing the client a service by being able to have them land on their feet in the appropriate level of care or with the appropriate provider. Yeah. And I'm going to quote Kelly from the private practice pro. You know, she says all the time, when you refer out, it will come back to you tenfold. Like you were just doing the best thing, not only for that client, but for your business as well. So that can be something as well that you keep in your toolbox to kind of fight that imposter syndrome of know what I'm doing is actually healthy for me. It's healthy for the client. It's healthy for the business. Yeah, absolutely. I believe in the abundance mentality in that regard. And networking is crucial. Two-way dual relationships, reciprocal relationships with other providers. We need to be able to understand that referring out appropriately comes back around. If I'm going to refer people out that I don't work with, kids, teenagers, families, couples, uh, clients struggle A, B, and C, it's going to come back around because I do work with things that other people don't work with. So we just have to recognize that we can build each other up and all be successful simultaneously. And I know that success can be defined very differently for people, but just working through your fears, taking that leap from community mental health and into private practice, I haven't met a single person who did that, who regrets it, who was like, you know what? It was fucking scary. I was really overwhelmed. But a year later down the road, I'm working my own hours. I'm setting my own schedule. I take off when I want to take off. I don't have to answer the on-call phone anymore. I don't have middle management like breathing down my neck about productivity. Like the list goes on and on. The whole, all of the reasons we leave community mental health jobs, they're all the same. So I just want everyone to really own that and just soak that in because entrepreneurship is really a beautiful thing. It's very freeing. There's a lot of autonomy. It's also not easy. Like there are speed bumps. There are road, you know, there's bumps along the way. I've been in New Orleans, like there's craters in the road, so so to speak, you know, like, and there's an ebb and flow to this. So don't start to consider or like ask yourself, did I make the right decision? Can I do this successfully when things don't go well? Because they're not going to go perfectly all the time. If they did, everybody would leave community mental health today. Yeah. Wow. That's so powerful. Like just, just thinking about that, that's totally right. You know, and when I, when I think about what stops people, you know, from leaving community mental health or or taking that jump, you know, I I do want to be clear that, you know, even entrepreneurs in any setting are, are likely to experience imposter syndrome. But again, there's just something special about almost that workplace trauma or that secondary trauma that comes with community mental health that might make us more susceptible to imposter syndrome. And even that point that you brought out about, you know, it's something that you need to fight. One way that I like to, um, you know, to view imposter syndrome is it's not always necessary. And I'm sure we're going to get into this later too, but I do not teach it as it is necessarily, or all the symptoms of it are necessarily a bad thing. You know, asking yourself, did I make the right decision? You know, reviewing decisions you've made, being humble about the 
the expertise that you put out in the world. The problem is that not everybody is is playing by those same rules. You know, if you are a black woman or a woman or a person of color, you know, you really have to ask yourself, is this imposter syndrome or is this workplace trauma? Is this trauma that I've experienced that is now showing up that looks similar to imposter syndrome? Because I might experience imposter syndrome, but for one of my colleagues who, you know, my co-owner is a black woman, you know, what is coming up for her might actually be workplace trauma. So that's something, you know, to explore as well. Yeah, great point. I just spoke at Therapy Reimagined about colonialism and imposter syndrome. And when we have institutionalized and systemic racism and even just a a society that is really patriarchal in nature, the workplace environment isn't necessarily catered to women, especially women of color. And if there's messaging for generations that you're not as good as enough, you're not as smart, we just let you be here. Of course, you're going to question your fucking competency. Like, it just makes sense why there would be that extra layer of insecurity or vigilance about it. And that's definitely a big component of this. So definitely different layers to imposter syndrome. And it shows up when we're growing. It shows up when we're taking risks, especially as entrepreneurs. If we're going to leave a steady, secure job to go into the unknown, of course, we're going to question our competency, whether or not we're going to be successful. And you're right. There are positives. Like humility is a positive thing. Questioning whether or not you did a good job is a positive thing. It means that you care about the outcome. So taking a lot of that ego away, but, you know, not letting it become paralyzing, not letting it prevent you from taking that next step and growing because fear and growth go hand in hand and anxiety and growth go hand in hand. We don't grow in stillness or in being complacent. So really just remembering that, like, it can show up in paralyzing perfectionism, too. And you can start to make these excuses in community mental health of I can't take the leap until I have 20 clients on my practice caseload that I see at night. If that's the case, great. But like that may not always happen. And sometimes we have to step out of our comfort zones to grow into more space, to have more availability for clients to schedule, to make more time for networking. We can't do those things if we're working 50 or 60 hours a week. It's it's really hard to juggle both at the same time. Yeah. And even as you're bringing that up, I'm just like, oh, God damn it. It's like my <laughs> supervisor gave the same advice of, you know, she was like, look, when you leave, make sure you have um, 20 clients. And this was a supervisor, you know, when you have a really good supervision relationship, I was like, I just want to be you. Like, I want to take everything that you're teaching me. You have a successful practice. I want to have that for myself as well. And even part of that imposter seminar is figuring out like her practice is just going to look different from mine and it's going to look different from the next supervisors. But yeah, for For me, I did not wait until I had a full caseload to make that decision to leave. And again, that's because of my privilege. You know, I had money saved up. I took extra work doing online therapy on the side. So for me, it almost just became so unsustainably emotionally, you know, especially after Hurricane Ida and losing her home temporarily. I could not do community mental health at the same time. And, you know, even And when you're bringing up what was the breaking point for you, I'm rethinking it now as we're talking. It was the point where they just did not give a shit about us about after a hurricane. And not to say, you know, that they they gave us time off, but it wasn't enough. It's not sustainable to take care of everything that we needed to take care of as employees, even as supervisors who were also out of their homes as well. So I think for me, leaving before I had a full caseload was just what I had to do. You know, what I had to do for me, for my mental health and for my family. And what helped, again, going back to your episodes, which I can't wait to hear about, you know, money mindset and abundance mindset. 
mindset is that I charged enough so that I did not have to have a full caseload before feeling comfortable to leaving. I now replace my entire income. God, this is so embarrassing. With like um, five to 10 clients that I had versus community mental health. So for me, it was like, well, this is, it's a good time. This is a good time. You know, I'm comfortable in that decision. Even though I still have that imposter syndrome, I could not let that imposter syndrome hold me back from doing what I needed to do to take care of myself and my financial well-being, my family's financial well-being. Yeah, that's really powerful. And going through a, a natural disaster as a community and being expected to show up, you know, is that's got to feel so unbelievably challenging and as if you're taken for granted and underappreciated as well simultaneously. And the fact that you can make your income back in five to 10 hours, I want everyone to hear that you can do that. And it's really easy to get caught up in the mindset of this paycheck is secure. My shitty health benefits that they give me are secure, even though the deductible is $10,000. And in reality, like you can replace that income so easily. And it does not take long to start to see the benefit of going out on your own and creating your own thing. So I just want everyone to hear that. Just some quick tips to deal with imposter syndrome. Typically, we're trying as much as we can to do self-compassion, but I like to try hard to give ourselves permission to make mistakes. I think imposter syndrome and fear come with failure and struggle, and we're not going to get it right the first time, and it's not going to be perfect. So give yourself permission to start something new and not know how to do it, to be able to make mistakes and to pick yourself back up. I also like really making it playful, you know, giving it a funny voice, giving it a funny name, just going back Back to that inner child piece where it's like we've got to be a little bit less vulnerable and surround yourself with good mentorship therapy that also helps good supervision good support systems colleagues who build you up you know this is not an abnormal or unique situation if you're experiencing it plenty of people do that's why it's talked about all the time in the therapy world so hope this was helpful and victoria i've really appreciated having you on and please tell the audience like where they can find more information about what you're doing and and your business and everything like that sure thank you so much patrick so you can find me at my car is my office um on all social media handles. So that's where I talk about all things community mental health. Um, I'm very excited to now offer trainings and consulting for community mental health agencies and for those of you transitioning out of community mental health. So you can find me again, that's www.mycarismyoffice.com. I love it. Well, thank you so much. And thanks everyone for listening to the All Things Private Practice podcast. You can download, subscribe, share every Monday. There's a new episode. If you'd like to be a guest, go on the website, allthingspractice.com and submit the form. If you would like to do more business or small business or private practice coaching, there's information on my website. I also moderate the All Things Private Practice Facebook group as well. Thank you so much. And we will see you next Monday. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.